Off the Bench is a podcast created by ASCLS that will discuss the scientific and not so scientific ideas in laboratory medicine. We are joined by members of ASCLS, fellow scientists, educators, and researchers, along with those interested in the profession. We share ideas and talk nerdy. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Off the Bench podcast. We hope that you're out there living your best summer uh, or winter if you're in the Southern Hemisphere. This is the season of barbecues, backpacking, traveling to amazing conferences, and yes, listening to podcasts. My name is Galena, co-hosting today with Sophia. And hello. In, <laughs> hello, Sophia. And in the spirit of all things fun, we have a great episode for you today. So a, a few months ago, there was an article circulating on social media um, that we will link to in the description. And uh, the title was Lab Director and Author to Create a TV Series Highlighting the Unsung Heroes of the Medical Field. And so it was all over the medical laboratory science forums. Um, and in the, the uh, catchy beginning of that is the author of six books is set to create a medical mystery TV series with the focus on medical laboratory professionals. And so I read that and I sat with that for a few weeks, um, contemplating uh, the, the chances and the likelihood that I would ever hear back <laughs> uh, from someone who is doing so much. And I figured, why not try to reach out eventually? And um, I reached out. And so with us today, we have Dr. Alan Wu. Um, thank you so much for joining our podcast. I'm super excited to have you on. Well, thank you, uh, Galena and Sophia, for hosting me. Um, this is a uh, a very exciting project, as I hope to convince you. <laughs> so before we get started talking about um, the article, the work, um, the, the books, all, all your accomplishments, um, tell us a little bit about what your current position and involvement in laboratory medicine is. Sure. So I am a professor of laboratory medicine at the University of California in San Francisco, and have been here for 18 years. Prior to that, I had similar positions at um, the University of Connecticut and the University of Texas. Um, in conjunction with my academic appointment, I am a section chief uh, for clinical chemistry and toxicology at major university-based hospitals. My current post is at the Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital. And before that, I was at Hartford Hospital in Connecticut and Herman Hospital in Houston, Texas. Looking at your University of California, San Francisco profile, uh, thank you for that introduction because I had no idea where to start. Um, you know, you have uh, several clinical trials and just your publication uh, list is um, very long. So it's from looking at that profile, I your background is definitely clinical and not so much uh, author or creative writing or um, any any of those fields, right? Do you have any background in that, or that um, you just decided to start writing for another reason? So actually, when I was a college student, I did poorly in my requisite English classes and terms of creative and composition writing and never thought that I would have 
any interest or skill in doing that. But during my multi-year career in the field in writing scientific and medical reports, I became more proficient at writing, more comfortable with writing, and felt that about seven years ago that I could do more than just writing to our peers, the uh, physicians and laboratorians who um, have a vested interest in the things that I do. And so how did your interest then move um, from, you know, your clinical publication and writing to your peers to the general, uh, to the general public? And, and to preface that again, uh, this article from 2021 referenced that you had six books um, at the time, and uh, that's quite the accomplishment. And, and so what... Um, types of books are these, and why did you choose to write to what audience? So the motivation was that um, I have been exposed to um, various budget cuts as part of my job as laboratory director here that are continuing to this date and was uh, fearful that the support that we need as laboratorians to advance the field was going to be compromised uh, and felt that there was something that I needed to do to try to reverse that trend. I have um, been a part of groups that have talked to legislators. I actually spoke to um, my local congressman just a few weeks ago about the state of the laboratory. And it's unfortunate that the attempts that I have made, as well as from my many colleagues, have not resulted in any real accomplishments. We are still in this um, budget cut era, which is going to threaten the viability of our profession. And it's because there is no groundswell of the general public to say that clinical laboratories are vital and that we do not um, need to cut here, that we should find other ways to um, cut in terms of healthcare. And so I felt that there had to be a different mechanism to promote that concept. Right, so really promoting clinical laboratory to the non-scientific community uh, to create a uh, greater voice for our community. And when you're talking about um, cuts to our funding, I'm sure uh, a lot of what you're referring to is PAMA. Um, and thankfully, I remember last year we had a podcast episode talking about the importance of contacting our legislators uh, to make sure uh, to postpone those cuts. And thankfully this year we were able to do so, um, but that's a, that's a temporary solution. So you're seeking something more, uh, more, more permanent than that. Well, unfortunately, PAMA is still um, on the books to happen. And the postponement of PAMA, in my opinion, was more related to the COVID pandemic than our efforts that despite the 
lobbying that various groups have made, we're still here. And so it takes something else to change the dynamic. And so six years ago, seven years ago, I began this campaign of writing books, paperback books that are at the level of the educated lay public. This is not sensationalism or uh, <clears throat> popular fiction. This is somewhat nonfiction, but it's meant to, on the one hand, um, educate the reader as to what we do, how we do it, why we do it, but written in a manner that is somewhat entertaining because I'm not interested in writing a textbook. I already have a dozen textbooks, not interested in continuing to write case reports because they only go to our peers. I was interested in writing to um, <clears throat> high school students, college students who might be interested in our profession, uh, but also um, patients, their families, and even their doctors to tell, tell, tell them what we, what we do is vitally important. Thank you for that uh, important work that you're doing. So if looking at your books, um, could you go over um, the, the general themes of your six books? Um, and maybe if you're willing to share an example story uh, from one of these books that, that you love um, to, because I've read um, a lot of them and they are so fun. I couldn't possibly uh, pick one and I can definitely see how um, the language you use and the stories you tell and how you tell them truly uh, does reach uh, a broader audience outside of our community. Well, thank you for those comments. Um, I was trying to make it um, uh, not too technical, but to make it very interesting and yet compelling because all of my stories relate to things that we do in the laboratory. Um, and so the different books focus on different subsections of the lab. My first one was on toxicology. It actually remains to be the bestseller for, for me because it does involve poisons and deaths. And that's a topic that seems to be always popular amongst, um, amongst viewers as well as readers. But I have expanded that to include a book on clinical chemistry, uh, on molecular diagnostics, on infectious diseases and microbiology. <clears throat> I've included a book on COVID that was published last year. Um, and I also have a speculative science fiction book, which will be the topic of another one of your podcasts. Yes, I am so excited for that. I've, I've read, I've been starting to read it. and I love it so far. Well, thank you, Sophia. Um, unfortunately, both you and Galena are not my target audience. <laughs> I don't need to convince you two of the importance of what we do. You are um, part of the solution. What I need is to reach people who can help make that solution a reality. 
So I guess for the layperson, like if, for example, my husband, who is a computer engineer and hears about it from me talking at him all the time about, oh my gosh, guess what happened at work today? Guess what we saw? What book should he start with first, would you recommend? Well, um, I would start with the toxicology book because to me, um, that traverses a little bit more of popular culture. Uh, again, uh, there's a fascination um, of the public surrounding crime, death, maladies, and not so much medical um, errors, which is sort of a, uh, a, a taboo to some people. They don't want to admit that medical errors have occurred and do occur. And uh, the critics of my books have, have suggested that um, maybe I should focus more on the heroic things that we do, the lives that we save, and the innovation that we create. And certainly I have done that, but I can't ignore the fact that when we don't pay attention, that we don't invest in the laboratory, we don't understand the services that we provide. Point in fact is bad things do happen. And very, very true. the general public is more sensitive to sometimes maladies than the greatness that we do. Very true. I'll, I will recommend my husband start with that then. <laughs> and, and I would love to hear his opinion because he is the target audience. Well, and just starting to think about how we can expand to that audience and, and to me, uh, bringing these books to STEM fairs, like you said, how do we get them out uh, to a broader audience? So in fact, that we're sitting here today and, and creating this hopefully um, creates the momentum necessary to spread it to the intended audience. Um, is there uh, a, a particular story from one of your books that that you would like to share as um, as an example of stories? Uh, sure. Um, let me tell you a story that is called The Spice of This Life. It's about a actor who is preparing for an audition. This is a true story. In fact, all of my uh, stories have medical and scientific truths um, some of the social aspects of the story have been de-identified because of privacy issues and sometimes embellished for entertainment purposes. But this one is almost dead on. An actress is studying, her agent is in the room, and the person is very nervous and is missing lines. So the agent decides to feed this actress some brownies that are laced with synthetic marijuana cannabinoids. This product happens to be called Spice. <clears throat> and it worked. She was a lot less inhibited uh, and was very dramatic and, and read her lines very well. The agent left thinking that mission accomplished. But the woman uh, became hallucinogenic and a little delirious, calls her husband, uh, come home, I don't feel just right. 
and he immediately leaves his job. He doesn't let work too far away, puts her to bed. He goes out of the room. She jumps out of bed, still delirious, hallucinogenic, and jumps out a window and jumps out of a window to her death. Very tragic. She lived for a few days in our hospital. We did everything we could. The uh, agent was put up for manslaughter when our lab identified that in fact, it was not THC, but a more potent version of THC, the so-called synthetic cannabinoids that are still out there today. Holy crap. <laughs> and that those are uh, those are all your stories. You know, the, they're very powerful uh, examples of laboratory and how they contribute. I uh, was blown away to to read um, your involvement in uh, the beginning of COVID response and going to the White House and having those interactions and and you know not giving too much away uh, for the readers that ho hopefully uh, will go on and explore those stories. Um, thank you for that. That was fantastic. <laughs> So you've had your books and you're still writing books. And now again, we've transitioned to this story uh, that I read that says, now you're going to be creating, creating a show out of that. You're writing a script, you're turning your books into a script. Um, so here's, here's the question. Um, why, why now? Um, why did you move from books and now you're moving into a different media? Um, so let, yeah, let's start with that. Okay, so getting back to the original motivation was to promote our profession to the field. Um, <clears throat> that mission is unchanged, but unfortunately, in my opinion, my efforts have been a failure. It has not moved the needle. It has not changed the dynamic of what we are and where we need to go. Yes, people have read it and they've been entertained by it. And I'm happy that people like my stories. I will continue to write just for that reason, that's enough. But the overall mission is still out there. And the reason that my books have not changed the dynamic is because I can't reach the audience that's needed. I have done a great job in my opinion of reaching uh, fellow laboratorians like like you two, but have not been able to reach the general public despite all the things that I've tried. I've I've been to book fairs, I've been to book clubs, uh, library clubs. I've spoken at high schools and colleges in this area, um, and the problem is that these books were self-published through Amazon, and Amazon does a great job of putting things together, but they're a printing company, not a book selling company. And in other words, they don't promote what they produce. And I do not have a literary agent, despite trying for three or four years to attract a professional agent who can then promote my books, I have failed. And so because I don't have a literary agent, 
it's not, my books are not seen by anybody. It's a closed club and you'll never see my title on anybody's bestsellers list. And that's how books get out there is that they have to be pushed by major publishing companies who then have connections with uh, groups like the New York Times. So it's been an N equals one campaign to get my message out there. So having failed at that approach, I took the next step, and that is to try to create a television show. There then I won't be relying on booksellers. I won't be relying on agents. I hope to be able to produce a program that people can watch and then learn. What a creative solution. That's fantastic. But also sounds very scary, especially if you don't have background and knowing what it takes. Um, I, for one, don't know how to publish a book or publish a manuscript for a Hollywood uh, uh, show. So um, what an endeavor. Um, where are you in the process right now for your uh, movie scripts? Is it movie or show? It's both. Um, <clears throat> my um, my promotion of the laboratory, we are trying to put together a scripted series. And my speculative science fiction, we're trying to put together a feature length movie. So it's a little bit deja vu. Deja vu in that, again, I'm an outsider looking in. I'm not a best-selling author. I don't have an agent. I'm not a Hollywood producer. I'm not an actor. I'm not a Hollywood writer, script writer, screenwriter. I'm an outsider. So I've had to work to promote myself professionally. This is the piece that you two saw and has been distributed in the internet. Again, it's not enough because um, your podcast and, and these press releases are not enough. And so I have to continue to find ways to get myself um, <clears throat> to the extent where, where somebody, somebody meeting um, either a professional writer or a studio to take my call, to take my email, to take my message. This is where I'm at. I'm trying to put together content that somebody will take a chance on and at least listen to what I have to offer. And you think that now would be as better time as any because the last few years of the pandemic really showed the general public a little bit more at least of what we do, even if it's in a very confined scope of a you know coronavirus testing response. Um, but it, it's still a, a good time. It's still fresh. You're absolutely correct. Um, I am parlaying the nation's interest and understanding of laboratory testing as uh, the result of the pandemic. So three years ago, before there was a pandemic, 
nobody cared about what we did. Nobody knew what a lab test was, except maybe if their father got cancer or, or something like that, then it became personal. But the general public, especially uh, younger people, they're invincible um, and they don't think about healthcare. The pandemic changed all that. And what it showed was that anybody and everybody can get infected and it's going to affect your life. It may end up ending your life. And so what was the singular most important factor was the inability in the early months of getting laboratory test results. And that continues to this day. Lots of supply issues, lots of misunderstanding of what test results mean, how to do a test, how to get a test, um, what the consequences of a positive test will be, when can I go back to work, when can I send my child back to school, all predicated on tests. So at least we now have uh, a subject matter that people should take interest in. I don't know that enough uh, was highlighted in the general news either when the in the height of the pandemic about the impact lab testing had in countries where it was really prioritized versus in countries that it wasn't. Um, I mean, I saw articles here and there comparing uh, lab testing at other uh, in other countries, but but not too much. So, um, no, you're absolutely correct. Um, I have colleagues in uh, Asia, particularly Singapore, uh, Taiwan, Korea, where they made that an emphasis. They, provo they provided the resources necessary and they did testing and they um, <clears throat> did the appropriate actions accordingly. And their rate of infection and mortality is a very small fraction of ours. And it's partly because of the um, resources given towards the clinical laboratory to make this happen. One thing as I'm thinking about your books and your show um, is how, how do you measure uh, the success of your efforts? Whether, you know, you said you didn't reach them with the book. Um, how do you measure it? Well, um, <clears throat> There is a, a rating that is the measure, and that is Nielsen. I want a program that is rated highly by the television and movie critics, and that is one that will get watched. That's the end result. And if I've done my job correctly in advising the studio regarding content, then that's the best I can do. And I will rest on that laurel. How will the popularity of your books and our show, um, kind of closing that loop, how would it help um, things like PAMA or our lab shortage reimbursement? How do you see the popularity of what you're doing cascading down to our field? I believe they'll go hand in hand. And the reason I believe that is because of the predicate program that I'm modeling this one after, and that's crime scene investigation. So CSI ran for 15 years. There were multiple sequels 
hundreds of episodes, and it has led to a well-described phenomenon, the so-called CSI phenomenon. Now, what is that? This show led to tremendous interest in college students entering the field of forensic science. It has changed the level of evidence necessary to present in a courtroom. It has led to increased funding of crime labs because the public now knows the behind the scenes, how science is used to solve, solve crime. And they have demanded that our law enforcement follow suit. That's the kind of phenomena I want to create with my show, a show that says, of course, we have to invest in laboratory medicine. I have a vested interest in making this happen. I want students to flock to our profession so that we don't have the shortages that my lab has today, that your lab has today. We don't see those shortages in the forensic science world today. As one of those college students that was very interested in the CSI field because of the TV shows, I fully understand what you mean. And I'm wondering if, or as, as a previously avid watcher of CSI, in terms of how the the episodes or this may be a question for the next podcast as well or you can go into more depth for the next podcast but i guess my biggest question is will we see anything as dramatic as say the ncis episode where there are two people typing on one keyboard for a laboratory like what, do you think we'll see anything like that or do you think we need to even reach those sort of um levels of almost ridiculousness because I know some people had said that even the CSI shows were almost a parody of themselves. Right. So I guess like, where do you, where do you find that fine line between still being accurate and truthful without being so entertaining that you have to push it into like the house realm or Grey's Anatomy realm? That's an excellent question. Um, so going back to CSI, the creator was not a forensic scientist. It was just a, a clever person who had an idea and became part of the show as the content editor, but with no experience, no background, no credibility. Uh, and therefore that program did have a little bit too much of Hollywood freedom to do things that true forensic scientists cringed because they knew that those things were not possible. If in my show, um, I am hopeful that I will have a role in maintaining the scientific and medical accuracy. And I think that there is a higher bar here um, because we're dealing with human lives. We're dealing with health. We're not dealing with crime, although crime might be a sub a topic. And therefore, this program, to some extent, has to be more credible, has to have a little bit more um, evidence that these things do occur, that this is how labs work. 
And I believe with my 40 years of experience that unlike the creator of CSI, I am eminently qualified to provide what goes on and will hope to have some veto power on content when it comes to scripts that we can that I can say you are misleading the public this is not what we do this is not how it's done and we shouldn't do it this way um <clears throat> so my end game is I want to be a part of that production I'm willing to leave what I'm doing now to make that happen because I believe that this is a higher mission for us than the day-to-day -day laboratory supervision of one hospital. I mean, that's important. I uh, don't want to underestimate my efforts here, but I think there's something bigger. <clears throat> but you can tell from my responses that I am all in on this and I am highly motivated. And for all the current medical shows that are out there about doctors and nurses, <laughs> I'm thinking of all the examples that are running through my head about times where lab is um, trivial, trivialized and it's misrepresented. And I was just thinking as you're talking, I, you know, if only every one of those shows had a consultant like you to come in and say, can you just please Please, I know you can't you can't run through the entire PCR from start to finish, but can you just do this one thing to make it a little bit more realistic? You know, I'm thinking, you know, Scrubs, the episode of where they're running around all day because there's a mislabeled urine specimen and they have no idea who it belongs to, and they finally figure it out at the end of the day. I guess they I don't figured know. out the next day. They figured out the next day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and then all, you know, that urine specimen is okay to be ran. Um, I'm thinking of all those examples um, in both medical shows and in investigation shows. Like I remember, I think, I think it's actually CSI that had an episode where they're running like a PCR reaction and they pop something in and it comes out five seconds later. And like, here we have a match and, um, you know, hopefully um, this show uh, really kind of undoes some of the misrepresentation that has happened for years now. Yes. Uh, you know, again, um, people who, who watch the show um, will be um, compelled to believe in its content and will then try to communicate that in their particular uh, situation to their caregivers. And they may say, you know, why can't I get this test? Or why doesn't this work for me? And if it's not real, then we are, then it will backfire. We will be causing a disservice to our patients and their families because they will be frustrated in the thinking that uh, they can do things when we can't. So it has to be real because when people watch shows, and if the show is good enough, they're going to put themselves into that position. They believe that this is really happening and that uh, <clears throat> the information is credible. And that is my responsibility to make that happen. In an ideal world, say where any studio has automatically greenlit you to do whatever you want and you have full control over your episodes. 
what would you imagine your characters, your pilot episode, how would you imagine the show going? For my um, promotion of the lab series, episode one introduces the main protagonists in the show, a laboratory director, a subsection chiefs, microbiologists, chemists, molecular diagnostic person, uh, a, a, a handful of recurring clinical laboratory scientists. <clears throat> These are the main protagonists. And secondary are the doctors and nurses for whom these results are given to. And then the um, patients who come in each episode will be different. Again, just like CSI, there's always a new dead body or a new victim. Uh, the cops are the same. The supervisors in the lab are the same. And so are the bench scientists. So the first episode has to create uh, the character set. But I've been told that that's not enough. You have to hook people into the show. There has to be something that happens that want that will um, entice somebody to go beyond the first episode. <clears throat> and so I have to set up a antagonistic situation where I have uh, a villain and that that villain has to be recurring because we want to see that conflict between the antagonists and the protagonists. In my books, I don't do that. My stories are standalone. The only recurring character is the person that you and Sophia are talking to right now. <laughs> you can't, you, you, mean, you mean to tell me you can't have uh, some flesh eating disease be the antagonist to the show, just a continual <laughs> presence that appears? <laughs> I would like to volunteer two potential villains, Pama being one <laughs> and the other being QC failures or instrument issues. I feel like those two are the most, as someone who works in chemistry all the time, those are my two biggest problems. Well, Pamela less so. Supply shortage a bit more than Pamela right now, but you know, a lot of QC failures that really delay that patient care. Unfortunately, those are nameless and faceless antagonists. Oh. And outside of the three of us, Nobody gives a damn. Ah, damn. Again, wrong audience. Yeah, <laughs> wrong audience. You need like an estranged husband coming from overseas after 10 years of departure with a missing leg or something. Like that's that's what they're wanting, right? No, I, I have uh, planned the antagonist. Do you want to hear it? Oh, yes. Are we allowed to know? Uh, yeah. Is it, of course. It, yes. It, it's, it's, in, it's in my book. Okay. And his name is Calvin. Calvin. So Calvin is a tech, a clinical lab scientist in my toxicology lab. And he is uncovering, so he's doing workplace drug testing. And he uncovers a, re, a recurrent donation of a sample that is adulterated 
by a lot of different ways. Sometimes there's an abnormal pH, sometimes it smells funny, sometimes it's diluted. And he knows this guy is cheating or this person is cheating. And I'm the lab director and he comes to me and says, we need to do some additional investigations to prove that this is not human urine or that this has been adulterated. And I tell him that we have laws uh, against doing witch hunts. We can't look for things that are not part of our protocol, not part of our SOP. And so I, I scold him to say that this is illegal what you're doing, you have to stop. He is undaunted. He continues to do these investigations. Sometimes he evaporates the urine and finds out, yeah, drugs are there. They've just been diluted out. <laughs> or sometimes he sees uh, a byproduct of a drug that's been altered by an adulterant. He's very smart. So uh, the, he's keeping track of the laws of drug testing. And one day we now have a law that says you can test for oxidants or you can test for diluents. And so he goes, aha, I can get this guy now the next time he comes in. So the guy that comes in the next time is a bus driver. And it's somebody that he knew in high school who was a bully in high school when, when Calvin was a younger kid. <clears throat> and he's high on heroin. He donates urine that day. It takes a, you know, a day or two to do the testing. He's driving his school bus and he has a traffic accident and he kills the wife and daughter, Calvin's wife and daughter. And Calvin finally figures out it's the same guy. He's the one that I could have put on, put him off the road had I listened to Calvin. So he blames me because he wanted to report the this uh, abuse, but I didn't let him. So he turns bad. He becomes the recurrent antagonist. What he does is he says, I've done it your way. I tried to be a good person. I tried to get drugs off the street. Look what it got me. My wife, my child are in the grave. Screw this. I'm going to profit from this. I'm going to form a company that makes these adulterants, that makes these chemicals that allow drug users to cheat. And then I'm going to expand and I'm going to start making performance enhancing drugs. I'm going to allow testosterone to be rampant, to allow uh, all of these things that cause other medical problems. <clears throat> and he's doing this, he forms this company while he's still working for me and I don't know that this is going on. He comes to grounds, he learns about all of these cases and then I don't know that he is actually behind some of these cases it's because his company has created the products that cause harm to these people. So that's the recurrent antagonist. Not every week, but many episodes, patient comes in and he's been using a, a bad product that's produced by Calvin and his company. I'm riveted and I love this so much. I cannot <laughs> wait. 
<laughs> when I, and I love hearing that you're incorporating your books into your your show because that was one of my questions too is how closely does your show follow the stories from your books okay so i have to embellish what we do for a living i don't want to embellish how we do what we do i don't want to cheat the science i don't want to cheat the medicine but i do want my antagonist and protagonist to be more involved with the cases, more involved with the storyline. It's not just about the doctor saving the day, it's about us saving the day sometimes. We provide the consultation or we even see the patient and make an observation or do something. That's not totally out of the realm of what I do for a living. I actually do see patients in the emergency department as part of the clinical trials that I do. And so mm -hmm. I see the issues that physicians see. I'm not qualified to offer therapeutics or to offer uh, management, but I certainly can be there to offer the, the expertise that, mm -hmm. uh, that I provide in terms of laboratory testing. So some of my um, <clears throat> uh, stories involve that. So, you know, it doesn't sound too embellished from that perspective on patient care, especially now that we have the DCLS program that's uh, just increasing exponentially, it seems like in the number of graduates that we have and, and their presence in, you know, the clinical rounding is so much more profound. So uh, again, I, I think it's very timely um, as our presence grows in the actual medical community. Let me, let me give you an example of where I have gone a little bit off the deep end. All right, so I wrote a story about a guy who comes in with blue fingertips. So he's anoxic. He has a low CO2 content. And uh, it turns out that um, he has um, met hemoglobinemia, where the iron group is oxidized from plus two to plus three. There are a number of intoxicants uh, and exposures, chemical exposures that can produce that condition. And so the poison center contacts my lab and says, we want you to investigate what might be present that's causing this O2 desaturation. And we find a chemical that, that is a, a aminotyoline that is a precursor to trinitrotyoline. This is all true. <laughs> and so um, the uh, poison center says, gee, how did he get a hold of this chemical? Maybe it is an, an, an occupational exposure, and we need to be sure that nobody else in his workplace is equally exposed to this chemical. So they send people to his uh, workplace, and they find that they, didn't, they couldn't identify where he got exposed. Okay, so that's where their true story ends. But where I embellish is that, okay, he is not somebody who is just occupationally exposed, but he's a, he's a terrorist and he's producing trinitrotyoline and that he's a bomb, he's making a bomb. And when we go to his place of work and find nothing, we then go to his home. This didn't happen. And I went to his home, this didn't happen. <clears throat> and he's there and he is, and he's shooting back at us because he's a terrorist and we had to capture him. Okay, so that part 
is fiction. It's folly. But part of that was actually true. That's fantastic. I'm so excited. It's so very Jack Bauer-esque. I love it. <laughs> so how, you know, you're, you're putting in a lot of effort into your books. You're still writing books. You're creating your um, scripts for your show. Um, what can we do? How can we help? And we, and by we, I mean, not just Sophia and I. So, you know, our audience is the medical laboratory science community whom you've already reached. Um, what's our call to action from you? I don't think there is one. Uh, certainly there is, um, I love it that you've invited me and, and I love it that uh, I'm going to um, be exposed to a bigger audience than I would have with an N equals one. So maybe now we have a N equals three. So I, I love the, uh, what you're doing. Um, but it's still preaching to the choir and I need to preach to the non-believers. And the only way to do that is outside of what I'm comfortable with. Are there any other um, laboratorians, lab directors uh, that you know of that are writing similar books or have the same vision of trying to bring this to uh, the general audience? Yeah, so the answer is no. Um, nobody is doing what I'm doing. And that's a shame because everybody has the stories that I have. But a lot of the people that I talk to don't share my vision, don't share the methodology, think that I'm, um, it's too much of a shot in the dark, that uh, they don't believe it will happen and they don't want to devote the time and energy to it. I've been very disappointed when I go around the country and talk to people and, and uh, people say, you know, that's, that's cool, you're doing that, but it's not gonna matter. And, and tomorrow it's gonna be, you're gonna go back to your lab and I'm gonna go back to mine and it's gonna be business as usual. And that's very discouraging to me that the people who should know better are having this attitude. Let me give you another story. Um, I'll give you two more stories. These are all true. <clears throat> um, I, uh, <clears throat> I'm trying to lose, lose my train of thought. There is a, uh, a group within the professional uh, in vitro diagnostics organizations that have representation for all the major IVDs, you know, Beckman, Abbott, a lot of really top uh, industry people have formed a, a lobbying group <clears throat> and their job is to, to do the things I said, lobby Congress and try to get laws changed, which, which hasn't worked for them. I appealed to them and I said, you know, this is my idea. This is what I think uh, could work, but I need investments and I need support. And would you be willing to support an activity that, that is directed towards a, a television program. A and they said, we'll have to talk to our lawyers. This is not part of our charter. Um, you know, they thought it was a good idea. At the end of the day, they said, thank you, but no thank you. So the, the industry that serves, that we, that, that we serve uh, is, not a, is not willing to pony up with this uh, idea 
when I think that they have every much to gain as we do. As we prosper, so do they. And as we get budget cuts, so do they. But they couldn't see past that. They couldn't see, this is not our core business. I, I, I don't know how to do this. I don't think that this will work. And uh, thank you for showing this to us. So very disappointing. That's number one. And then more recently, this was before the pandemic, more recently, I submitted a series of editorials to our local newspaper. And I said, I, I entitled the, the piece, uh, COVID-19 testing, maybe PAMA was not such a good idea. And I said to them, what we've just talked about, that um, the reason that we have so many cases and the reason that you can't get a test result is that Congress passed cuts to the lab to the point where we're all working on bare bones. We're all working harder than we ever did before with less resources, more tests. And when something like this happens, the pandemic, there was nobody around to, to deal with it. We didn't have extra people. And that's trickled down all the way down to industry. <laughs> and it was uh, the reason that um, <clears throat> that the virus spread as it did. I was, you know, being very blunt about it. The, the inability to get tests led to this. And then I gave them two um, <clears throat> metrics. 70% of all medical decisions are based on the result of a clinical laboratory test. At the same time, hospital budgets to the laboratory is three to 5%. A big dichotomy of value versus investment. And so I, I gave this, uh, this analogy. Let's say you are Nike and you are in charge of the advertising budget and you could put your money into shoes or you could put your money into headbands. What are you going to do? Well, you're obviously gonna go after the big money winner. You're gonna go after the, the, the biggest bang and that's shoes, not headbands. So why are hospitals not investing in laboratories that provide so much value and so much um, information? We'd rather buy the next generation CAT scan that will affect a quarter of the population, maybe. Well, I could not get any of these newspapers to consider publishing that piece. It fell on deaf ears. Mm. So maybe that is uh, the call to action to us, right? You are not N, my, N equals one. Uh, now you are N equals three. Uh, what if we grow this effort to N equals 50, right? So, um, you know, by listening, by sharing your stories, your books, um, you know, we're, we can create more change agents. We can create a greater face of the franchise, right? Um, you know, you grow yours, but also um, inspire and 
ask other people out there because there are creative writers that are also laboratorians. There's um, extroverts that are laboratorians that love to speak, right? So now um, we can say, you know, if you've got the talent to write a book about laboratory science, um, uh, do it. Um, if you uh, go to story slams, you know, whatever, whatever it takes, right? Um, you know, it, it, it's not just on your shoulders. It can be on all of our shoulders to bring this to the public. I can't disagree with that. I just am not as convinced that um, there will be others like me to follow. There might be, you never know. Um, I, while I realize what I do is technically kind of preaching to the choir, I actually have started, uh, during the pandemic, I started writing lab comics and I post them on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Um, a couple of them have reached a I think one of them had like a 15,000 person reach, but that could have been just within the medical community, but that was international, which was fantastic. Um, I've also started running a lab store, which I've noticed since I've started running my lab store, either because I've now, um, I'm now looking at other like, you know, lab pro products out there, but there are actually more people who are now creating lab products as well. Like they're making custom like mugs and things. Um, I, I think I still have a little bit of a grip hold on the stationary world, but that's okay. Um, my house can survive the boxes, I think. Just don't tell Jayco, um, cause I haven't put any of my cardboard away, but I, I, I don't know. I think, I think there's hope yet simply because there are more, there are more people out there now who are a bit more invested now that we've gone through COVID. So I'm, I'm hoping that with you know, as we're, we're not quite at the end of COVID, we're still liking on the, I want to say like latter third, hopefully, uh, you know, speculatively, latter third, maybe half, um, that people will take this opportunity to find out more. I, I know on social media, it feels like, you know, we're spending, many more laboratories are spending much more time explaining how things do or don't work and why things are the way they are, and probably explain to their family members, well, your CBC looks normal. Your doctor will probably tell you that too, but you're going to be fine sort of thing. Um, so hopefully, I'm hoping there are more people out there who are willing to do this, who are able to find time to do this as well. Yeah, um, I, I don't want to be such a naysayer because uh, the world has changed. And uh, um, when I was your age, uh, there was no such thing as portals for medical information. My generation, and particularly the generation even older than mine, took a physician's word as gospel that nobody ever challenged, hardly ever got second opinions, and certainly they never did any investigation of the results on lab tests. Now that we have so much information at our fingertips and that we can look at our own lab results, we can have more intelligent conversations with our caregivers and, and say, well, what was the motivation here? What 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 are we learning from this? Or maybe this test could help. And that is going to ultimately benefit the profession, going to benefit us, and it's going to benefit healthcare as, as a whole. So this is the world that I want to create and, and uh, wish that and hope that we can get there. I know we're hoping for the same thing, and that's why we do what we do. So the, the other thing that could happen is that um, Hollywood is a 
good old boys club and maybe it's um, changing a little bit, but it's never been about what you know or what you do. It's who, right? It's what is your connection? How can I get anybody to pick up the phone? And as I go around and give these talks, um, this is how I connected with some of the people who I struck a nerve because they know somebody or their cousin or friend is a producer this or a producer that. And, uh, it, and if it were to be known that we're trying to do this, I'm hoping that somebody will find that compelling and say, yeah, this is unique content. We already have a skeleton of stories and uh, I will push this forward within my studio. That That's a, a possibility. Again, hopefully someone listening to this podcast um, you know, has a connection and uh, again, we can start networking from there. Or if anyone um, wants to like, you know, just Twitter bomb a bunch of people say, <laughs> Hey, come read this, come read Dr. Wu's books. That works too. Yeah. Whatever, whatever social media you use. <laughs> well, and the other thing is, um, and, and maybe we can even talk about this on your platform. Uh, and that is um, having a series of podcasts that are not informational, like what you're doing, uh, but is entertainment. And the entertainment would be uh, telling stories, telling lab stories, just like what I just told you, maybe in more detail. And that could be a driver if that becomes viral. You know, I don't have um, any uh, predictions that, that I can actually create that but maybe you guys um, are more closer to it and, and think that that could happen. I think so. I do know based off our statistics from our Halloween spooky episode from last uh, October, where we had users submit their scary stories where I think one of them even involved a potential ghost in a blood bank room <laughs> because their room was next to the morgue. That one had some pretty good listening stats. Like quite a few people listened to those and actually shared it too. So that was really nice. So there, there's always a possibility. Um, is there a way for people to potentially contact you if they have other ideas or like other things that they may want to reach out about, about, hey, if I want to promote something, if I want to tell these stories, how do I do that? Yeah, uh, uh, you can release my uh, contact information, both telephone and email. And, you know, I'm not so busy and so big that I would, uh, wouldn't handle that. I mean, this is, this is my passion, as you can see. So uh, I would be jumping on that, for sure. And I think I said this to you, Galena, before, that um, um, Have Gun Will Travel, that used to be a TV show, um, where um, uh, I'm willing to, to do Zooms and, and even personal appearances to talking to groups about what I'm trying to do and, and hoping to, to get that groundswell. Thank you so much. That's a, a very generous offer uh, to tap into. Uh, you know, you have 
uh, gosh, what was it over uh, 40 years uh, of background in running labs and you're writing books you're you have so such a wealth of knowledge um, and passion that I'm sure uh, that that there's going to be several people that would be very interested in in pursuing conversation and, and engagements and conferences. Um, you were in, in an ASCLS conference in the past, haven't you? Yes, um, Excellent. about six or seven years ago, I believe. Yes. And if people uh, want to uh, read your books, how do they find them? Amazon. I do have a uh, webpage. It's alanhbwu.com, uh, where five, my first five books have uh, are listed. It hasn't been updated. I don't know how much traffic I get on that website. But I do have three new books, uh, well, at least in the last few years, the COVID book that I've been mentioning. Uh, I published a book uh, last, late last year called My COVID Diary. And it's actually about my niece, who was 16, now 17, who wrote about her experiences in a diary of her family, my brother. Uh, who contracted COVID in the early months and was um, near death um, in New York. And, uh, and, you know, the horrors behind that, as it was really therapeutic for her to do this. And, uh, and we did this. But I have a, my eighth book that was just published two weeks ago. Oh, that's exciting. <laughs> Yay. You probably can't see it too well. It's entitled um, Toxicology and Lab Medicine, a sequel. Mm. So, you know, I wrote the first five books six years ago and I started, you know, I never stopped writing. And anytime I get a story, I think about it and I write about it. And then I don't have a place to put it because I don't want to add to an existing book. That the spines, you know, get thicker and you have to redesign everything. <laughs> they just sat in, in my, my vault until I had enough of them. And, uh, and so, and, and they're not agnostic to a particular topic. There, there's a couple of toxicology book uh, stories, there's a chemistry story, there are some hematology stories, and even some new mind portal stories, which we haven't talked mm -hmm. about. So um, I can't wait to tell you about mind portal. This is actually even more of a passion of mine. So even more reason to tune in because it's gonna be awesome because talking to you has been absolutely amazing. I'm sorry I'm clapping my hand so much. I'm really excited. As a huge fan of science fiction, I cannot wait to talk about this. Well, think... let me just give you a teaser, okay? <clears throat> um, there has been a lot of time travel shows, um, <clears throat> but uh, again, there's never been a theme for those shows, uh, a mission or something more than just entertainment. Uh, this book is meant to promote lab medicine. It's not different from the other books, but it does so uh, with the sci-fi theme. Um, it's a what if, what if we're able to transmit our modern laboratory testing knowledge and medical therapies that are related to those knowledge to important people in the past 
and thereby changing their destiny, changing what they ended up doing in history. And it's all because this doctor of a famous patient did this or that, something that we do every, every day perhaps, but it wasn't available in their time. And I make it available, that's the speculative part. And the most fun part is creating what is the alternate reality of this one person or one group surviving. And I have 30 of these different celebrities. And, and just like it's important for me to keep the medicine and the laboratory honest, these are things that are real, things that we do. I have to keep the historic knowledge real as well. And the twist is that these characters, these people in time uh, who died perhaps before their time, there are medical theorists who, who opine on alternate cause of death, that they say, gee, maybe FDR didn't die of polio. This is not something I made up. This is in the medical literature. There is data to suggest that he died of something else. <clears throat> so th that's the starting point, that somebody who had a medical problem that is real, that actually happened. I spend a lot of time investigating the true cases, <clears throat> but then I take it the next step and I say, okay, well, if he really didn't have this and he really had that, how do we diagnose that? And if we can go back in time and change it, then the whole world as we know it, as I write it, changes. So that's all I'll say. Oh, that's so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time uh, to hang out with us, uh, to spend your Friday afternoon on, I'm sure, a beautiful summer day in California. I don't know. I'm just speculating. I just got back in town from there. But thank you so much. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. We look forward to uh, connecting again for our next episode. All right. You both have a, a wonderful weekend as well. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.